Welcome back to American Graffiti, one song at a time. I am your DJ, Doris, and today my guest is Brad. Hey, Brad. Hi, Doris. How you doing? Well, together we're watching song or scene 24, which is Yaya by Lee Dorsey. So, Yaya, what does it mean? You know, I kept wondering, he's waiting for his yaya. What does it mean? That's such a good question. And I've been thinking about this and I've done a little bit of research and there isn't a lot of background from the little research I've done. They more talk about the Beatles love this song and the Beatles will perform this and it's been covered a bunch of times and all that. But I would love, need to do a deeper dive into it because I'm pretty sure it's filthy. Well, he's he's sitting here, Lala, waiting for his yaya. Uh huh. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm, it makes me think of the um, the Little Richard song "Tutti Fruity," which comes across as such an innocuous song, but then you go back and research it and find out that before "Tutti Fruity" became a big radio hit, Little Richard would play that song at uh, gay clubs with filthy, filthy lyrics. Yeah, and, the, and of course, yeah, back then. A fruit is another word for a gay person, right? Right. You know, but then Little Richard basically took out all the dirty, like really heavy double entendres and just replaced it with nonsense words. And I, I have a feeling that there is like an original version of this song somewhere that is just as dirty as dirty can be. And he just is like, well, I, I can't say vagina or any other term for it. So I'm just going to say ya ya instead. <laughs> I definitely have the feeling you are right on this one. <laughs> and, and it was real common because, you know, it, to get on the radio, especially Lee Dorsey, an African-American gentleman, to get something on the radio, you had to be so careful what you said and had to completely erase anything overt. And, yeah. he, you know, he did it with great success. And it was really common back then. And I was I, speaking of the Beatles, as I briefly mentioned, because they love this song and they recover it. Uh, a long time ago, I was on a, I was in England on a Beatles tour and they talked about how when they, the Beatles came over to the States, they only had one shot because they weren't sure that American audiences would take to a British band. So they need to get the most innocuous G rated song they could think of. So that's why the first big American hit for the Beatles was I want to hold your hand because you're not going to get any more innocuous than that. So, I, and I just think of that. Is, and so, the yeah, yeah, it just strikes me as a completely innocuous song that always wasn't that way. But it's a great song. I, I listened to it by itself a couple times. It's a great bluesy, big sound. Good rhythm. The beat to it, the bass that goes through it. And Dorsey has a great voice. You know, and that was sort of the, the dance that... A lot of performers did where you have these neutered songs, but you have sort of a sexy performance behind it. So you sort of know it's dirty. So I, <laughs> I, I can imagine that somewhere there were kids in the back of a car smiling at each other, singing the songs. And the parents are like, I, I know the kids know this is kind of dirty, but I can't really yell at them for saying yeah, yeah, because then I would have because to explain stuff. There. Yeah. And um, even if... You don't listen for or you don't have that, this is dirty in, in the back of your head. just makes you feel good if you listen to it. Kind of like a feel-good song, I think. It's, yeah, it's uplifting. It's a really fun song. I mean, I, I don't think Lee Dorsey gets near the credit he deserves other than, and this is also very common for a black performer from that era. You know, your success is going to come from a hit here or there and then white performers either covering your songs or ripping off your songs and becoming making a lot more money off them. Yeah, like 
Elvis did. Oh, yeah. Elvis's entire career, and I'm an Elvis fan, but his entire career was based on the fact that he put a white face on black music and made millions of times the, the success, fame, and money that the performers that created everything that he stole ever dreamed of making. Mm-hmm. Because the world is profoundly unfair. Especially in those days. Oh, yeah, definitely. It, it, you know, it, you're now in, we're well past the era where you can have a successful black performer who can be viewed as talented, a sex symbol, everything. So that's definitely improved. But, you know, but, but back then, you know, Jack Dorsey, if, you know, he, he died at the age of, he, he was 61 years old dying of emphysema in New Orleans and probably didn't have a nickel to, you know, and mm. didn't have nearly the money he deserved for how successful and how talented he was. So I just completely brought down your audience. I'm sorry for that. <laughs> for well, bringing up social injustice. <laughs> Someone else is down in this scene, though. We have Debbie sitting in the car waiting for Terry. But is she really waiting for him, or is she just waiting for him to bring the booze? She's so great. Was it uh, Candace Clark who plays Can- the role? Candy Clark, yeah. And she inhabited this role. We've seen this sort of role in a thousand times in movies at this, where she's, she knows she's the prettiest girl. She knows she's prettier than her date, but the pickings are sort of slim. You know, she's, she wants the booze and then she just gets stuck and she ends up paying for the booze. She's like, and you can see, she says the girls don't pay, but what she's really saying is pretty girls don't pay. She's, you for real? Are you for real? I mean, she kind of knows it's not his car, and he he's not the cool guy. No, no. It, it reminds me of my mom, who grew up in this era. You know, th- this was about, she was probably about the same age as these characters. And she would talk about how her and her, they, they would often, her and her girlfriends would go on dates, and they would go to the drive-in movie theater. And the guys that they were with would say, okay, you guys, you go in and we'll jump the fence and we'll meet you inside the drive-in. And my mom's like, I don't even know why, why we went for this. Because we ended up paying for ourselves and it wasn't like the guys came in and said, oh, here's our half of the money or anything. It's like, what? why was I paying to watch a movie with these schmucks? But it's because they didn't have any better options because... Guys were dumb and yeah. not real refined and out of their league, but there just wasn't better options for her. That really is dumb, yeah. Yeah, she is kind of really annoyed at Terry. Bringing all this crap in his bag and not having the booze and then asking her for a dollar. And also his excuse is kind of lame. He doesn't have change. He only has a 50 with him. Yeah, always the big pants, yeah. Like, always bragging. What I really like is is the car in front of that giant ice sign. Because right now the scene is frozen, as in Debbie is, is kind of calling off on Terry. Oh, she's just about done. She is. She's had it. Couldn't be any more perfect casting. Charles Martin Smith, who I'm sure you've talked about plenty. And he's had an entire career of playing that sort of likable, over-his-head, nerdy guy with a little bit of charm. Just enough charm that... You sort of want him to do okay. Yeah, always slightly the underdog. And still working and has had a lot a lot of iconic roles. You know, Untouchables, which is one of my, uh, one of my personal favorite movies. Yeah, he is, the, he is the hero in the sense that he is the one who actually gets Al Capone convicted. <laughs> 
Right, right. He was this smart guy that actually had a plan. And of course, because he wasn't the best looking guy and not the star of the movie, he was the one who ended up getting shot in the face for it. Hmm, poor sap. But then, of course, um, there's this one version of, I don't know, is it a Spanish one, of the movie poster where he is dead center in the biggest face? Like the movie, like Terry is the main character in the movie. Yeah, somehow these guys got it right. And this, it's a weird movie because it's, there's so many parallel stories. It's definitely an ensemble. Now that seems weird because Ron Howard's a big deal and Cindy Williams definitely had a lot of fame for the 10, 15 years after this because of Laverne and Shirley. And of course, you have Richard Dreyfus who became a pretty yeah. big star. And of course, Harrison Ford who, Really, it's just a cameo, like a very small part in this, but it's Harrison Ford. Yeah, exactly. But from what you've watched on this, like in your opinion, who is the star or who gets the most screen time? And where would his character, you know, land on that? I mean, he, and in my opinion, Terry has the most interesting storyline. If you follow him around through that night, what is S Steve and Laurie, what are they doing? They're having a fight. They're arguing all the time. Kurt is trying to find his lady. John is stuck with Carol and except for uh, the race at the end. What else happens to them during the night? Then there's Terry. He gets into a, a holdup. He gets into what they think is the chase for a serial killer. And he actually has a successful date. So it's almost like he has the most plot. He has the most The most interesting adventure of the night. Also almost like, because this movie, it's really hard to understand, like going back in time, this movie is so shocking that Lucas directed it. Because it's so different from everything else he did. And it, it feels like it's playing away from his strengths because this is a coming of age comedy with a lot of character work and comedy. And when you think of George Lucas, what he's good at, first off, you don't even think of him as a good director anymore. And his strengths is really as a producer and a, science, and, a, and a special effects guy, like doing everything that other, creating all the tools that other directors and studios use to make stuff great. But, you know, with, with American Graffiti, this is him telling us like a story pulled from stuff from his childhood. But it, it feels like this scene, as soon as you have the guy coming out, throwing the booze and running away and getting shot at, it's like, okay, this, this actually, this actually feels the most George Lucas of everything. Just <laughs> some craziness and, oh my gosh, what's going on and sort of out of nowhere. It's like the Terry stuff is where George Lucas got his plot out of the way. <laughs> and where he would throw in all the crazy stuff. And the other characters, everything else was a little subdued. And I wonder if that was intentional. It's like, okay, Charles Martin Smith can do sort of wacky, hijinksy stuff really well. And I want to have the fun stuff. Almost like an action movie where every 10 pages they need to have an action scene. It's like, we need to have some craziness every 10 pages. So we're just going to throw that at the Terry scenes. Yeah, and also the not cool guy gets to experience the most cool stuff in in, in the storyline. And Terry, he kind of, he is so awkward that you can just imagine that all this stuff really happening to that kind of person. Yeah, like he's so, uh, he, he, he lacks, 
he, he's not cool. He's not the guy who's going to sidestep any of this foolishness because he understands what's happening. He's so over his head that he's just going to get pulled directly into the into the whirlwind, and you can sort of throw him in any direction you want. But because he is likable, you 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 want him to do okay. You want him to get the girl. You want him to prove that he's worth this very pretty girl who's obviously yeah. barely interested in him. You want him to prove us like, oh, actually, him to have the save the day moment where she sort of sees him in a different light. Especially after what the other guys did to him at the uh, drive-in early in the evening, pulling his pants down in front of the girl. Not Debbie, but the other girl he wanted to impress. Well, it's it's funny. This morning, the TV was on and no one was paying attention. And there was like a Save by the Bell, the college years, where and in the episode, there was a girl that Zach, played by Mark Paul Gossler, who's got movie star good looks and always is portrayed as the cool, smart, cocky guy who gets the girl. And he liked a girl who ended up liking Screech instead. And I was like, oh, and I... Looked at it and I said, you know what? Now, I'm far from a say by the bell expert, but I was like, I'm pretty sure this isn't a plot line that happened. And it's amazing that it didn't happen at this, this point because there should, you always want that arc where the guy who is a little awkward is not great looking, especially in the world of television because he's competing against guys who are all five inches taller and are better shape and look like, you know, soap opera stars. But you want that guy to get the girl every now and then. So you want this sort of average looking guy to, especially one who's portrayed as the butt of the joke all the time, you want him to do all right. Because it's mostly that we see ourselves in that kind of character because who among us has movie star looks on us like the hero or the jock right heck i uh, not that long ago i was uh moving some stuff and i moved the yearbooks and it's funny i was like huh and you look through the yearbook and you realize the prettiest girl in school doesn't look like the, the homely girl in an aaron spelling show and that's not to take any shot. I mean, she was a very pretty girl, but you realize that in real life, mm. the the prettiest girl in the uh, suburban Philadelphia school doesn't look perfect and doesn't look like a movie star because none of us do. There's exactly. a reason why, you know, there's a reason why uh, J- Jennifer Lawrence gets paid millions and millions of dollars to be in movies because great looks and charisma and having some amount of acting talent is actually really a rare thing to have yeah very rare terry gets lucky in the scene as he gets his booze and he's lucky he doesn't get shot i looked up the actor who plays the thief that's what he's called on imdb the thief it's a guy called james craner and he was in thx 1138 and he used to be the voice of tebow in the ewoks cartoons <laughs> so that's his connection to george lucas there are quite a few other people who were in thx or who have other things in connection with lucasfilm that are in this movie and in small parts otherwise he has a lot of tv to his credit and a lot of voice work have you ever seen THX uh, 1138? I have, yeah. Because it's, it's an interesting movie where it's viewed as a very important film, but a lot of people haven't seen it. It's funny. It's a weird movie. One of those weird movies where because of the relationship with Lucas and how it was sort of the 
the, the embryonic piece of this great empire that he created. Also, THX, uh, THX 1138 shows up in all the Pixar movies. Like, people are aware of it, but I don't, I think 90% of people, if you asked them to give you even the most basic details of plot, wouldn't be able to help you with that. Yeah, not a lot of people have seen it, yeah. I mean, I, I have the DVD, but I think I watched it once. And it is a strange film. It's certainly not a, a movie that you watch and it makes you feel good. Yeah, kind of dark and, you know. Very it's, it's... dystopian. Also, if I think George Lucas, he is not, I mean, if you look at Star Wars and there is dark stuff in there, but most of his films kind of have this hopeful ending and THX, well. N not necessarily, not so no. much. Yeah, he was good with, and, and you're right, with Star Wars, there was a lot of darkness in there, I mean, heck, you realize that the end of Empire Strikes Back, they're in bad shape. Luke has his hand cut off, Han's been frozen, everything's in disarray, but it's sort of a thing where if they would have cut the movie off 10 minutes earlier, it would have been really dark, but the movie ends with them having a plan, going into the next step, like they're going in the right direction. And then also you have that amazing John Williams score where, yeah, you know, you could have a puppy snuff film, but with that score, you would still feel pretty good at the end of the day. Ooh, I do not recommend trying sure that. But, uh, that. <laughs> I mean, the, don't, the score don't try that at home, kids. But, uh, you know, it, it's the darkness can be really compensated when you have this John Williams score that is so good at making you feel good things. Yeah, and, and they're looking out into a future that is uncertain, but it's not hopeless. And I mean, if you look at the ending, spoilers, the ending of this film, it ends on supposedly positive, but if you re look really close, it is kind of dark as well. Sort of reminds me of the ending of the Stand By Me Ending a Stand By Me where you have this great coming-of-age story and mm. these kids are going to be friends forever. And then you quickly have – you find out that, no, life was a little rough. Life was rough for those kids. Yeah, and basically the person telling the story is the one who was the most successful, just like in this film. Right, right. Yeah, so there are quite a lot, I think, kind of parallel storylines between Stand By Me and American Graffiti. If you look at what the characters then become – or turn out to be when they grow up. So one thing that I, I have to ask you, then we sort of breezed over, when you have the scene where the guy comes out of liquor store, throws the bottle and runs, and you have the shop owner coming up and just firing into the yeah. night. Like bang, bang, bang. <laughs> it's a very shocking thing because it comes out of nowhere. It is ridiculous because I don't think that was that common. I know it's the view that people who aren't in America have of America. Like, we just like firing our six shooters into the air for no reason. <laughs> but I hope that wasn't part of the world then where a guy runs off and we don't have the explanation what happened. I, I guess the implication is he went up, got the booze and then just ran out of the store without paying. Which seems weird because why would he have it brown? bag then it is not in the film but it is in the script that terry uh looks into the window and sees the guy after he's gotten the uh the whiskey he sees the guy pointing a gun at the store owner and actually pulling the money out of the cashier which is not shown in the movie so the thief has a gun pulled first so it is a hold up which would explain the whole thing a lot better but i think the way they did it in the movie with terry being totally stunned by what happens now is so much more effective. Yeah, I sort of like it because I, I do like 
Terry has no idea what's going on and all this stuff is happening around him. So almost like if we were to know too much more, it would sort of undercut the story. And I'm actually a big fan of jokes or movies, TV books or whatever, where you have the hapless guy and he just shows up and there's a whole world of stuff going on and he never gets an explanation and the audience doesn't get it because you don't need it. It's like, all you know is like, uh, I, I think, and this isn't the best example, but a more relatively recent one was the Tom Cruise, Cameron Diaz movie, Night and Day, where they had a couple of scenes where Cameron Diaz was coming, going in and out of consciousness. And every time she opened her eyes, they were in some crazy situation. Like they're skydiving. She's like, why am I skydiving? And she passes out. And next, Tom Cruise is tied up upside down, swinging, and he's about ready to get beaten up. And he's like, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. And she passes out. Next thing you know, she wakes up and they're in Fiji or something. And there's something very fun about that where you have the character where you're seeing it from their perspective and you only get drips and drabs and you know there's a story there, but the character that you're seeing through their eyes doesn't see it, so you shouldn't see it either. And, and that could be really fun. It also gives you something to talk about on your drive home. It's like, what do you think happened there? Yeah, it makes it more interesting. And in this scene, you don't need to see that it was a hold up. You can clearly see, because why would the store owner shoot the guy or shoot at the guy? Yeah, folks, uh, to those who are not American, store owners rarely shoot at people. <laughs> it doesn't happen as often as you think. It would be kind of very dangerous. I mean, keeping a gun around is always dangerous. But what if the other guy shoots back and he probably shoots better than you? So I'm just for a bottle of whiskey. It's not worth that. Uh, it's not worth your life. <laughs> Yeah. I've worked in retail in my life, but I've known people who have worked in more challenging retail spaces where if you work at a, a convenience store, bank, whatever, where they actually tell you what to do when something like that happens. Uh, I worked at a video store where they did have a button underneath where if we were getting held up, you were supposed to hit the button. Of course, the daughter of the owner being a little girl of five years old, hey, there's a button. So she would push it. So every now and then the cops would just show up with the lights blaring and it's like okay was this a robbery or did a little girl see the button again it's like little girl saw the button again it's like please tell her to stop that <laughs> i will say I, I never got robbed i never had a gun pulled on me those days the problem with criminality wasn't somebody you know telling you to open the till and give him the money it was people like trying to steal the dirty movies from the back room which we yeah. had that situation way too and often i guess his problem is probably also the people trying to get booze without id or trying to steal cigarettes or something and not really holding them up at gunpoint. But that, yeah. that is Hollywood. And we got to give it to Hollywood. Oh, yeah. It's, it's definitely much more interesting. And I watching this, you know, for the first time, you think, okay, something's going to happen here because stuff just happens to Terry. And you think it's a thing where the guy's going to come out shove Terry in the, like, shove Terry back by the face and run off with his booze and his money. But, you know, instead it goes in a completely different direction where he's, like, throwing in the bottle and you're like, why would he throw him like that? And then realize, like, oh. Thieves honor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, honor among thieves. He's not the ultimate bad guy, I think. No, he's, he knows what a kid wants booze. And it was also just funny where Terry's going to stumble through asking for the booze and he's like, oh, let me say, you want, you want, you want the alcohol? Give me the money. Yeah, I know the spiel. I've been there. 
That is so funny because, of course, it's, he's the third guy that Terry tries to get the booze from. He's failed twice already. Now, did you ever have that experience being underage and trying to find the person to get the alcohol for you? Personally, I haven't because I live in a country where, first of all, underage drinking is a thing. So uh, you can get the not hard liquor like wine and beer. You can buy easily once you're 16. You can have alcohol if your parents allow you to even under 16 when they're present, for example. It's not illegal. You can buy the hard stuff at the supermarket. They will not sell it to you if you're not uh, 18, but sometimes maybe they will. I've never been in the situation where I had to ask a person to buy me the stuff because I didn't get into enjoying liquor when I wasn't 18 yet. Because it, I didn't like it back then. I was perfectly fine with just drinking wine, and that was legal to buy. I remember, specifically when I was in college, there'd be one or there'd be a handful of parties where they would tell you, hey, everybody bring 10 bucks, and there'd be the alcohol there, and you just threw your money into a bin. And, you know, I remember being in college, and everyone had that friend who was a, jun a junior or senior, and you'd just be like, hey, if I give you. Yeah, someone. Someone's older brother will do the booze run. Well, you know, it's just college. So you, you're everyone's living in the same campus and basically in the same dorms. You know, you know somebody and where it got dicey for a lot of people, including me, is that if you were so many of the people that I went to college with, I went to a university called Lock Haven University, which specialized in teaching degrees. Mm -hmm. They were sort of known for where really good teachers come from Lock Haven. And the problem is if you got caught buying alcohol for someone underage, uh, it would show up on your record and then you wouldn't be able to get your uh, teaching certificate. Ouch. Not yeah. a good role model for the young ones. No. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where it made sense is like, hey, you know, they would do a criminal history check. And if they find out supplying alcohol to underage kids, despite the fact that they're 19, 20 years old, no one's going to give you a job. And I remember I was a, I was an education major and having that where all of a sudden all my friends who were 19, 20 years old are like, Hey, Brad, can you, I was like, you're asking me for, to put the risk of my career that if I supply you alcohol, you take it to your dorm room, which is a dry campus. You're not have to have it. Then you get busted and they ask you who gave it to you. And if you say my name, my career goes down the toilet. And it's like, and I don't trust you that much. I think you'll sing like a canary. Yeah. It's like, and I know that because I was in your spot not that long ago. And uh, I, I can't, I, I would like to think I would be real tough and wouldn't name names. But when it comes, push comes to shove, uh, I'm, I'm not that much of a badass. Yeah. I mean, I'm a teacher as well. So, uh, but no one cares about that kind of stuff. I mean, they do a background check on you be, um, before they employ you as a teacher. But um, I guess that would be like too small a thing to even show up. I'm not quite sure, though. As I said, I never was in the situation where I had to ask someone to, to buy alcohol for me, nor was I in a situation where I was asked to provide alcohol for others. As soon as you're out of high school, you're pretty much legal to drink anyway. I remember a, a young woman that I, I went to college with who, or it might have even been a high school, she might have been a high school senior where she studied abroad in Europe for a period of time. And she said it was uh, quite a kickback to reality where she got in her uh, – she, she was on the flight back. And she just nonchalantly said to the the woman on the plane, "Is like, oh, yes, I'll have a glass of wine, please. And the woman just looked at her and was like, you're going back to America now, honey. You're not 21. She's like, oh, no. <laughs> Take me yeah. back to Europe. I, I miss my wine. 
<laughs> yeah, well, okay. Teenage alcoholism is still a problem here as well, of course. Just like everywhere. Just because you're allowed to drink at 16 doesn't mean you're not foolish about it at 21. Yeah, I mean, having access, I understand that there's been a theory that if you don't make it, if it's legal, it become it loses its sort of outlaw luster. But if you're predisposed to having a problem with alcohol, being able to go out and buy alcohol is not going to help the, pro- the, the issue. Exactly. Doesn't matter what age you are. Well, we go out of this scene with a howl, which is the wolfman on the radio howling like a wolf. And it will take us straight into the next scene. Brad. Will you be able to join me tomorrow for the next scene? Uh, I'm very excited to come back. I've had a wonderful time talking with you, and uh, I I look forward to discussing the next scene, even though it's not music-heavy. But it's also a neat scene and a great contrast to this one, so uh, you, you, you couldn't keep me away. Nice! So, Brad, do you have any projects that you would like to kind of plug on the show? Uh, certainly, I am the uh, host and co-founder of the Cosmic Geppetto podcast, where we uh, talk uh, geeky stuff, talk to cool people about geeky stuff, uh, movies, comics, music, TV. We always have a great time, and uh, we would love for the I would love for your listeners to give us a to give us a listen. And uh, we always have a great time. We're always positive and have a smile on our face, and uh, we, we we hope to do the same for you. That's great. Well, if our listeners want to join us for more talk about American graffiti and alcohol and car culture, they can join us on Facebook at Mel's Listeners Drive In, or they can find us on Twitter and Instagram at VCR Privileges. That is our mother company, our podcast company. All right. See you tomorrow for another song or in this case, songless minute of American graffiti. He's really fast, isn't he?